So it's really important to understand what we're entering into when we get into Genesis 4 through 11 is catch this perspective of God. And I can't remember if the Bible Project stresses this or not, but it's very much the case, and I'm sure they do. But Genesis 3, sin enters the world. Genesis 4 to 11, God essentially gives you a picture of what sin does to the world. With him intervening at times. So, this is very much the case of hell, in a sense. C.S. Lewis says, in the end, there are only two ways. Or, I think he says, in the end, there are only two thy wills. Thy will. Man saying to God, thy will be done. Or God saying to man, thy will be done. And sending him to hell. So, there are only those that say, God, I want your will on heaven and on earth. I want that. That's, what, that's my passion. That's what I want. That's what I want to participate in. I want you to get the other will out of me. I, that's all I want. The other people say, I want my will all the time. And God, check yourself. Back up. Stay away. And then God says, your will be done. Here you go. And he gives them over to a depraved mind or he gives them to hell. That's, that's how God responds. And this is Genesis 4-11. to God is essentially handing people over to this. Now, because he is a God of justice and grace, he occasionally intervenes. And we will see that in spades with Cain. He intervenes with Cain in a way that's pretty shocking. Shocking. The way God's love pours out with Cain. Okay? So, that's, that's what we're entering into. Just, you know, on your, on your sheets, you know, you could almost draw something like this. Like brackets. Brackets like that. And then do a 4 to 11. Because it is, in a sense, its own bracket within Genesis 1 through 11. You'll, you'll feel that, I hope, as we go. I don't, I don't think I'm inserting that on the text. I think it's pretty present. Okay? All right. So in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Okay? You are now narrative experts. Right? You are now aware of the way God works in Hebrew narrative and how he nudges. Are there any nudges in this text that, should, that your eyes should catch and you shouldn't read over quickly? James. Very good. Very good. Yes. That's what I want you to catch. That's the big thing you ought to catch in this text. Cain's is of the fruit of the ground. 
Abel's is way more described, and it's described with these terms. Firstborn of the flock. What does that tell you? Well, the first that you might be able to get something from, right? Like in one of the things in the U.S. that they do that you'll go into businesses and they'll have framed on the wall a dollar bill. And that was their first dollar bill that they got as a business. It's kind of like their first fruits, all right? Abel brings the first thing that he could have kept and he gave it to God from the production. And then of the first thing he gave, what did he give? What particular portion? The fat portion. The most special portion. So he gave the best of the flock, and of the best of the flock, he gave the best. That's kind of the idea. Okay? All right, exactly. It's what you guys should have noticed. You should notice that the narrator's telling you something. What you'll find in the text, if you read even closer is you'll find that Abel's name is mentioned seven times and brother is used in reference to Abel seven times and Cain's, mention, Cain's name is mentioned 14 times. This is how close the narrator wants you to read the text. These are important, guys. You may not think it's important in Ethiopian culture, or I may not think it's important in American culture, but it is important in Hebrew narrative art. These things matter. They, they lead you, they're leading you somewhere. They do, this is their way of doing something that we need to sort of submit to if we're going to understand the Bible. You know, we have to, you know, I try not to use so many analogies that only fit the United States because I'm wanting to accommodate this culture. Well, we need to read the Bible that way, right? We need to accommodate its culture and understand it and see how it's written. So Abel, seven times. Brother used in reference to Abel, seven times. Cain's name is mentioned 14 times. There's a likely intention of a contrast. The, the narrator is saying, I want you to compare these two guys. I want you to look at what he's doing, and I want you to look at what he's doing. Catch this. Abel's offering in the law is codified. In other words, what Abel brought without the law fulfilled the law. It wrote the script of the law. In other words, God is looking at Abel and he's saying, do you see his heart? That's what I'm putting in my law. What you see in his character, the way he looks at me, that's what I'm putting in the law. I want you to see me the way Abel saw me. I don't want you to see me the way Cain saw me. I want you to see me the way Abel saw me. That's what he's doing in doing that. Cain's offering in the law is upscaled twice. In other words, have you guys, have you guys ever heard of Dr. Seuss? Or the Grinch who stole Christmas? You ever heard that? No? 
forget about it. But anyway, it's a, it's a kid's book in the U.S., and I just told you I wouldn't do this, and now I'm doing it. But the Grinch who stole Christmas, his heart was two sizes too small, is what it says. Cain's heart was two sizes too small, according to God. Cain brought of the fruit of the ground. In the law, it's written, you're to bring the first fruits of the ground, like Abel did, and then the best of the first fruits. Okay? Now, why did Abel do what he did, and why did Cain do what he did? Significant question. Hebrews answers it for us. By, everybody say it. Offered, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So here's, here's the concept, guys. Abel's offering corresponded to the goodness and character dimensions of God. Cain's didn't. Abel understood that God is the highest and best. Therefore, he gave him the highest and best. Abel, or Cain, did not think that about God, which is why he gave him of the fruit of the ground. So Abel's offering corresponded to the character dimensions of God. Cain's didn't. Jesus has a very similar view. He's sitting in the temple. Imagine, imagine this, imagine this. This is the table, this is the table where people are bringing their offering to God, okay? And Jesus does this. To each one of us. Would that be intimidating? As we bring our offering. And he watches. He's, he's, he's assessing what people give in the temple. That's what he's doing. Pretty intimidating, right? Just like God is watching what Cain and Abel bring, Jesus is offering what these people bring. This is what he says. He calls his disciples to him, right? Said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For, all, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So, why is that wonderful? Because her gift equated what God should be worth. That's the deal. God's worthiness corresponded to Abel and this poor widow's gift. It corresponded. It, it, was, it was a proper. It's like, it's like, man, if, if you devote everything to something, someone would be like, man, you must really think that is like special. And you're like, well, I do because this and this and this and this. Well, that's what Abel's gift was to God. You gave him the best you had? 
Yeah, why? Because he's the best. You got to get to know him. He's incredible. I'm not giving because I have to. He's worthy of it. This is the concept. It's faith. It's faith is believing that God's better than anything else. That's faith. Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. And faith is, he tells you what faith is. Hebrews 11.6. Believing that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Okay? That means that I believe in following God, there is great pleasure. Psalm 1611, in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I, I, I love being with God because he's God. I love talking about him, Paul says. Yeah, it's, I keep wanting to call you Ishmael. Emmanuel. I don't think so. I don't think so. Another thing that people often conjecture about is, was, was Abel's accepted because it was a blood offering, and was Cain's not accepted because it was of the fruit of the ground? I don't think that's true either. Um, because you can offer things from the fruit of the ground. It's just that they were to be the best. So what we'll find when we get into like uh, Leviticus and such is that there were economic categories for every offering. That's why it's so monotonous when you read it, because it's all saying the same thing. But what it's changing is what they could bring. So the wealthy people would bring of the herd, like or a bull or you know something like that. Middle class would bring a sheep or a goat. The poor would bring two turtle doves or pigeons. The poor poor would bring oil and grain. So in other words, it's just like the altar burning all the time. In other words, no matter what your economic background is, you can bring to God. You can sacrifice to God. That's, that's the concept. Significantly, Joseph and Mary, when they, when they bring Jesus to the temple after he's born, they're offering a sacrifice after having the baby, which was Old Testament law. Anybody remember what they bring? Turtle doves. Which tells you that Jesus was born into a poor family. Okay, so let's continue here. Question? Yeah. So um, in this text, did not say that Cain brought you know, an undesirable portion. It just says he brought a portion, right? Yeah. Then are we assuming that he didn't bring the best? Absolutely. Right? Yes, very much so. Yep, because in the law, it tells you bring the first fruits, and of the first fruits, bring the best. So Cain clearly brought just an average thing. God says no. Now, if Cain were in a repentant state, which he's not, it's very clear that he's not, we'll see. If he were in a repentant state, instead of killing Abel, what should he do with Abel? Huh? Teach me! That's, that's exactly what Cain should have done. 
what did I get wrong? That's what he should have done. Very good, uh, Mikey. So 4, 9, and 10 is meant to be a parallel with 3, 9, and 13. Where are those parallels? So you come, you come into, God comes into the garden and he says to Adam, where are you? Right? In verse 9. And then... There's more. He, he, he gets into, I should have put uh, verse 13. Verse 9 and 13 because he says, what is this you have done? Okay? And then you look at, oh sorry, that, I'm, looking at, I'm looking at the chapter 4. So Genesis 3, 9 and 13 is God coming in to Adam and Eve. The first thing he says is, where are you? The, second thing he, or the last thing he says to Eve is, what have you done? Okay? He comes to Cain in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. And what do we find? Where is Abel, your brother? And he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord says, what have you done? Now, why, why, would, why would the narrator tell you these things? That God just asked, where are you? What have you done? And then he comes to Cain, and the, the verbatim questions are asked again, essentially. Where are you? What have you done? Okay? The likely answer to this is that the narrator is seeking to tell you the fall did this. What Adam and Eve did led to this. Know that. Know that you've just witnessed the first human murder. And I want you to know that what got spun right there is spinning right here. What was sown right there is a whirlwind right here. They ate from a tree. This has is, this is now led to homicide, murder. Okay? It's, it's growing. It's growing. It's a cancer. Sin is a cancer, and it's, it's gaining momentum. That's, that's what's going on here. Further contrast intended between his response and Adam, and Adam and Eve's. And this is what I was talking about, Adam's faith, potential faith. This is where another argument that it might be that Adam had faith in the way the difference between how Adam and Eve respond to God's judgment and how Cain responds to God's judgment. God says to him, where's your brother? What have you done? Now, we skipped over, and I, I didn't uh, want to do that, but I, we've already mentioned it. God comes to Cain after he doesn't accept it, right? So it's not like God just let Cain go, and he's like, well, maybe he'll get it next time, right? That's not God. God's, you know, there's one of you that's not healthy, you all do something here, and I can tell one of you is not healthy, and I'm your pastor. And, and we finish up here, and that person that's not healthy, you guys are all talking really lovingly and happy and checking on each other, and the guy that's not healthy in this room is walking out because something's wrong with him. What do I do? I go to him, right? And say, hey, man, what's going on? What's wrong? You know? 
That's what God does, right? What, what do we see in the parable of the prodigal? Not son, sons, right? What do we do? Prodigal son comes home, elder brother, he's not coming to the party, right? What does the father do? His joy is not complete until both of his boys are there, right? He goes out and he says, man, what's going on? Come to the party. So God is that God. He chases down and he says, Cain, sin is at your door. Why is your face downcast? What's going on? And you notice all these questions from God? Question, question, question. Which is incredibly humble of God, isn't it? Because he already knows all the answers. It's just unbelievable. All these questions to Adam and Eve, to Cain, just questions to help them navigate to the thing. But how do we see Cain respond to God? I don't know. I'm not my brother's keeper. Am I my brother's keeper? And this gets really heinous. You want to know why? Because we've been told that Abel is the keeper of the flocks. He's a shepherd. He keeps the flocks. Cain uses a word in responding to God that can be used in a shepherd context. I don't know. Am I the shepherd's shepherd? He just killed him. He just murdered him. And he says he has the goal, the nerve to say to God, am I supposed to keep the keeper? So, are you beginning to see the contrast develop between Adam and Cain? Adam did not have a good response to God. But when the judgment fell, Adam responded to it and repented in in at least his turn of behavior and he names Eve a very positive thing in regard to God's promises. Cain, so far, is just like Adam with a really, really bad response, but it gets worse, whereas Adam's got better. We think, anyway. And, yep, I just told you that. In the responses, and, and, and what God does is he says, essentially, it's retributive irony. The blood of your brother is crying out to me from the soil. Therefore, the soil, as bad as it was with your dad, it won't give you anything. You will be a wanderer on the earth. In other words, it's a, it's a next step from Adam. Adam's was, it's going to be really hard to get stuff, to get produce. It's going to be tough. Cain's was, you're just going to have to walk and get it where you find it. It's already grown because it's not going to grow for you. Cain responds by saying, instead of saying, okay, okay, I'm sorry what I did. I will do that. That's essentially what Adam did. Cain says, you're too strict. It's too hard. If, I, I want, if I'm wondering anybody, someone will find me and they'll kill me. God responds and he says, not so. I'll put a mark on you so that no one will ever kill you. And if that happens, I will avenge you sevenfold. That's, that's the thing. So the question is, Cain's now got some sort of mark. We have no idea what that is. Is Cain then going to say, 
okay, you've been gracious to me like twice now. You didn't kill me for killing Abel, which is going to be what happens after Genesis 9, capital punishment. You've cursed me, but you've given me a way to live with the curse. And I will accept that. Is that what Cain does? No. God has told him, you will be a wanderer of the earth. But that leads us up into the next narrative. But the point here is that the effects of the fall are spiraling. It's, it's getting worse. It's getting worse is the idea. Okay? Um, and what we see in God's gracious condescension to Cain, we see the same thing in Christ. As he's being led to his death, he's pleading for forgiveness. And, very similar to Cain, among the rebels that had been in, in, in prison, who had committed murder in, in the insurrection, was a man called Barabbas. Interestingly, if anybody felt the death of Jesus very appropriately, it would be Barabbas. Because Jesus officially died in his place, right? Pretty crazy. Barabbas was next on the chopping block, you know? That's what it seems. So, in other words, I just want to point out, Jesus has the heart of his dad. He has the heart of his father, who, who deals with murderers. Guys, just imagine... Imagine God walking through the caution tape, you know, into a homicide. He's walking into a murder scene, and he pleads with the murderer to do what's right after he's done the deed. It's just incredible. All right, Four, 14 to 15, Cain is pronounced a perpetual wander, wanderer, but God gave him a provision. Cain's response Chapter 4, 16, keep looking at your text, is to settle in Nod, which is the Hebrew word for... You see that? You see that oxymoron? Cain settled in the land of wandering. <laughs> I mean, it can't get any clearer. God told him you'd be a wanderer but he settles in the land of watering, wandering. Is Cain an, an exile person, or is he an earth dweller? Is he choosing exile, or is he choosing earth? Earth. He's, he's like Demas with Paul, where he chose his stomach over the work of the gospel. He's fleshly. Cain is fleshly. He's an earth dweller. His tent pegs are, are pounded in deep into the earth. That's the idea. Now, very significant, you guys have to remember east. Okay? And here's how. Where did he station the cherubim? In the east of the Garden of Eden. Which means that if we picture, if we picture this as the Garden of Eden, this stack of books, the cherubim is standing right here. It's stationed right here. And what you'll find as we read through Genesis is that everybody bad moves east. Very significant. Because what is east doing? East is moving further from the door of the Father's house. That's what's happening. Cain dwelt in the east. He went east. This is east. Or this is west. And what you'll find is that when the tabernacle faces east, right? It faces east. That's how God had him set it up. Just like Garden of Eden. That meant the Holy of Holies is in the 
west. So every time somebody moves east, you should get the weebie-jeebies. It's not good. It's bad. Something bad is afoot when someone's moving east. And Cain moves east. Then he doesn't just settle. He builds a city and names it after his son, Enoch. Any problem with that? Whose image were we made in? God's. Whose, whose image is Cain projecting? His boys. His sons. His son's image. He names the city Enoch. He's made in the image of God, and all he cares about is his image in his son. Do you see? That's, that's what's going on here. This is very important to catch these little clues. Cain's genealogy settles um, a fitting image for Cain in the man of Lamech. So what we're now entering into is that we're going through genealogies. Now, i got to tell you this, and you need to catch this for the rest of Genesis. When the narrator gives you genealogies, he always follows a pattern. It's a pattern that I call dead ends and doorways. We'll get to it in a second. But here's what it is. He, he will tell you about two lines. Right now he's telling you about Cain's line, and next he's going to tell you about Seth's line. And here's what he always does. He always tells you about the first line of the guy that you shouldn't pay attention to. Then the next line he tells you about is the guy that you should go with. It's as though he's saying, let me wrap up this first guy because he's a dead end. He's a dead branch. You don't need to worry about him anymore. Now I want to talk to you about the doorway. You follow this guy because this guy is connected to the woman's seed that's going to bring the Messiah. So I'm going to close, this, I'm going to close shop on this guy and I'm going to give you this guy. Follow him. In other words, he's paving the, the way for the next chapter. That's the concept, all right? And so he gives Cain's genealogy, and in the genealogy, he kind of skips after name, boom, 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 and then he gets to this guy named Lamech. And the point of this is to demonstrate that Lamech was a really good representation of who Cain was. And what do we learn about Cain, uh, Lamech? He's... He, uh, you're thinking of Nimrod. Yeah. Um, what's that? He takes two wives for himself. He says, if anyone as much as strikes me, if Cain was avenged sevenfold, if anyone as much as strikes me, I'll avenge him 77-fold. So who's Lamech? Lamech is a powerful jerk. That's who Lamech is. He takes two women. When God said, man should leave his father and mother, cling to his wife, and they should become one flesh. He says, no, I'll take two, please. And then he says, if you as much as, like, bump me in the street, I'll kill you. That's who Lamech is. And the reason the narrator gives you this image is to say, this is what Cain was like. You want to know what Cain was like? Take a look at Lamech. It's, it's, it's a projection. It's a bigger image of Cain. And so this is meant to be contrasted with Seth. Oh, and by the way, Cain's descendants are the ones that establish civilization. 
Okay? Now, we've got to be really careful here. Civilization is not wrong. We're all living it. I mean, you know, we're not all called to be no, like, like actual nomads that don't help anybody. We're living in civilization. Civilization is not wrong. But Cain's descendants were all about it. They were, all, they were the city planners because they were earthly. They were not exiles, strangers, sojourners, aliens. They were, hey man, this is my home and I'm going to make it nice. That's, that's the idea. Now this is meant to be contrasted with Seth, as I said. Conclusion, Cain chose the world as his home and refused to live in exile. Oops, that shouldn't be there quite yet. That's the conclusion of Seth, though. Seth, birth, his birth appears in the text as a replacement for Abel's. You see that Seth, Eve says Seth came to replace Abel is kind of the intention. So that gives you, that gives you a narrative nudge that Abel's good. Seth names his son Enosh, which is a word for man. It's another word for man, like Adam. Enosh is a word for man. But it's a word for man that highlights man's weakness. When you read it in Job 17 and Psalm 8, it comes in the context like, what is man? Like, man is nothing. Man's dust. That's the idea. So Seth names his son weakness, essentially. Dust. Nothingness. In other words, he's broken. He's a broken individual. And it's for that reason, you know, what are the Beatitudes? The first thing Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That was Seth. And we learn that by the way he names his son. The text indicates that at the time of Seth, Seth's time, people began to call on the name of the Lord, likely meant to contrast with Cain and Lamech's concern for their own name. Right? So Seth, if, if, this, if this were Eden, right here, you could imagine that Seth's house was like right here. He's like, I'm waiting on God. I want rescued. And that becomes really clear as you read on. Because then it gives you Seth's genealogy. Seth appears to have pitched his tent outside of Eden. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Lamech was all about the passions of the flesh, wasn't he? If I'm mad at you, I'll kill you. If you're a woman, I want more of you. Right? Okay. Which wage war against your soul. That was Lamech. Or that... He, he waged war and he abided it. Okay, so now we get into the genealogy of Seth, and that's where you see the dead ends in the doorways. Now, when Adam have lived, oh, and this is the point I already made with federal and seminal headship, likeness and image. Okay, now let's go on. Seth has two descendants with the same names as Cain's descendants. I want you to find them. Enoch is one of them, not Enosh. One more, though. There's another one. And interestingly, there are two important characters in Cain's genealogy, and then there are two important characters in Seth's genealogy. Lamech. Lamech, yep. So, Cain had an Enoch. He named a city after him. What do we know about Seth's Enoch? 
And Enoch walked with God, and God took him, for he was not. Okay? So, Cain's Enoch gets a city named after him on earth. Seth's Enoch gets taken off the earth because he walked with God. See the difference? That's what the narrator wants you to see. Then, let's talk about Cain had a Lamech. He was a guy that you hoped you lived in a different city. Okay? What do we know about Seth's Lamech? Somebody tell me. What's that? Noah's father. And read what, read what Lamech says. All right. He'll give us rest. He'll give us Noach. And he names him Noah. Lamech is longing for the earth. It's still an earthly concern, but it's a heavenly earthly concern. I want earth to go back to Edenic state. I'm, I'm broken. I'm dead. I'm dead with this. I'm, I'm mourning. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Lamech's saying, I want out of this place, man. I want, I want it changed. I want it renewed. I want rest again. So he names his son Noah. So Cain's Enoch has an earthly city after him, contrasted the sets, contrasting homes, one with God, one on earth. Cain's Lamech boasts his boast in a man-centered earthly way. Seth, Seth's Lamech hopes his hopes in an Eden-centered earthly way. And over that, okay, yeah. Yeah, I, I think, um, oh, as far as Cain and Abel, yeah, I don't, oh, I don't, I don't know. If, are you taking that like in a, um, like a faith-based way? I just, it's interesting to me that chapter four starts, yeah. you've had two kids, chapter five starts, like Adam had a son in his own image likeness. Yeah, man, I've never seen that anywhere, James. Yeah, I've never seen that. Um, yeah, if people are uncomfortable with seminal headship, that's probably their, their interpretation. But I've never heard that before. Um, but that's a fascinating one. The, the place where I'd be uncomfortable with that is that Seth, or, uh, Shem, when we get to Noah, Shem's descendants will move east. Shem is the chosen line that, from which the Messiah will come out of Ham and Japheth. But his descendants move east, and they're the ones that create Babel. So that would make me a little shaky to go too far with that because it's not, it's not kept up. You see what I'm saying? Shem doesn't keep that up. In other words, Shem has descendants that are from the Messianic line that are total pagans. Because Abraham comes from him and he's an idol worshiper. So I don't know. But that, I wouldn't discount it. I would say I'd be skeptical for that reason, but it's very possible. That's an interesting thought, you know? That if, if Adam was right and Seth is the appointed heir of Abel, you know, like, I don't know. There's, there's something to chew on there. 
That's cool. That's a good thought. Okay. So we're getting into the flood. People began to multiply and fill the earth. What does that sound like? Where have we heard that before? Genesis where? <laughs> All right. Are you seeing what's happening? What did God tell man to do? Multiply and fill the earth. Great! But then he tells you, so the earth was filled with violence. Fill the earth with the image of God. God looks down and what does he see it filled with? Guys like Lamech. Right? So God looks down on the earth. He's meant to see his image. Instead he sees violence. That's supposed to strike you as a reader. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. What does that play back to? And, the earth, and he saw that the earth was very good, right? Now the earth is corrupt. It's a striking difference between Genesis 1. Filled with violence. Okay, I really don't want to spend a lot of time on this. It's such a small part of the Bible. But I, I do think it's important. The sons of God intermarrying with the daughters of men. I, I have a handout for you here today that I'll hand you at the end of class um, of a guy that uh, presents the different views. He ends up going with my view, which he's the first guy I found that ever went with my view. So I, I, know, I want you to know that my view is like small in a sense, but it's part of the biggest view that there is, okay? All right, so here's my view on the sons of God intermarrying with the daughters of men. Here's what you got to ask. You got to ask, this is your guiding question to understand what that is. Why does God flood the whole earth because of it? That's the question you got to ask. All right, so if it's, if it's an angelic sin, why is the earth judged for it? That's, that's an important question. Now, that might lead you to think I'm going to go in a different direction. But, so the, basically the two big views are that the sons of God are one of two things, as far as I know, of the views out there. They are either the sons of Seth. In other words, they're from the godly line. The godly line. Some people take like a royalty line, I think like with kings. But Seth is a pretty dominant view. The sons of Seth intermarry with the daughters of men that are ungodly, is that view's view. Okay? So it's kind of like why you're not supposed to marry the Canaanites. That's kind of where they say, hey, you see it there, it's probably here too. So that's, that's one prevailing view. The other view is that, so these are actual humans, and then it gets to the point in this passage where it says, and the Nephilim were on the, on the land in that time, which are these giants, okay? That view says, these guys didn't produce the Nephilim. The narrator's just telling you, hey, and by the way, there were huge people on the land during that time, and they, they continued because their DNA was in people, and you, you'll see Nephilim beyond Genesis 6 through 9. All right. So, that's one view. Where my view falls is that these sons of God, oh, and by the way, Israel is called God's sons. They're never called sons of God, but they are called God's sons, okay? So the sons of God view is that these are fallen angels that cohabitate with the daughters of men. Now, do we see angels take on man's bodies in Genesis? 
Yeah, we do. Where do we see that? Abraham, Genesis 18, right? They, they eat, right? So they have bodily fluids and functions, right? Okay, the reason I'm uncomfortable with angels taking on new bodies like they appear to in Genesis 18, those angels didn't possess anybody. <laughs> They're God's angels, right? They just took on the form of flesh and ate. The reason I'm uncomfortable with demons taking on flesh, cohabitating, and actually impregnating women is because now you have this like off-breed of demonic slash human people, and how are they redeemed? And It's just very bizarre. So I don't take that view. Okay. I take the view that these are fallen angels, but they possessed people, wicked people. And as a result of that, they were like legion in Mark 6. I think it's Mark 6 or 5. What do we know about legion? We already talked about legion, right? You chain that guy up, he bursts chains. He's wickedly strong, okay? And I think the reason that God judged the earth for this is because in that day there were actually fathers that wanted their daughters to marry those guys. Why? For, for strength, for power, for authority, for dominion, in the most wicked, imaginable way. That's what I think. The guy I'm going to give you also takes that view. Yeah. That's a cool, that's a cool thought too. Yeah. I think that's really good addition to that, maybe. Yeah, very, very good thought. Because, I mean, you see in Revelation, he's trying. He's trying to kill. Yeah. Uh, and, he's, and persecution in the church is always happening. So that, that's also a good thought. They are humans. They, when they impregnate a woman and that woman has a baby, it's a human baby. Now, it might be possessed by a demon, but it's a human baby. So how do you explain the nature? Okay, I take uh, both, both views. I, there may be one view that thinks that half demon, half human people are huge and massive. There may be a view out there. I, I would say avoid that view like the plague, personally. But... Uh, the, the Sethite view and what I'm proposing both take the common view that when the narrator tells you that, he's simply just adding an addendum to what he just said. And by the way, there were these massive people on the land. Okay, so that's short. We don't, it's really a small part. Oh, the other, the other thing is that second, another, this is always a question you've got to ask. What does the New Testament think of the old, right? That's a big question. With, with creation, with marriage, with all that sort of stuff. When you read Peter and Jude, you really come away thinking that Peter and Jude thought that those were fallen angels too. You can't read those passages, in my opinion, and walk away happy with a Seth view. Sons of Seth view. So, just kick that around. 2 Peter 2.4 and Jude 6. Okay? Alright. What I would say is incredibly significant... And this is why I think the flood came, right here. The violence that was done by these guys, and in that day there were men of renown. The Hebrew word for renown is going to become very significant throughout the Genesis narrative. It is, the Hebrew word is simply Shem. Shem. 
This is why the flood is connected to Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. Do you know what the people of Tower of Babel were concerned about making? Do you know what the word for name is? Shem. This is why I am proposing the view I'm proposing. These guys, these dads, were wanting their daughters to be with guys so that they could make a name. They wanted a name. And what is this so radically opposed to? Image. That's the deal. Jesus says to the Pharisees, how can you glory in God when all you care about is the glory from other people? Right? What do you care? What did they care about the Pharisees? They were people of the name. They want the best seats. They, want, they wear their robes. They pray their, pray their prayers. They fast so that everybody knows it. What do they care about? Name from a horizontal perspective, right? They don't care about the glory of God. They care about a following. They care about a following. Okay, it's not, it's not these guys. It's not, it's not what God's about. God wants people to care about his image. So these were men of renown is what was going on in the days of the flood. Now, where does this call back to? All flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. We know where that's from, right? That's Genesis 1 talk. Genesis 1 talk is what he's going to eradicate. But he's going to establish his covenant with Noah, which means my redeeming the world plan is going to be through your line. Now, what is really important, and I, I don't think I put on the uh, notes, and I really, really should have, is what do we know about Noah? We talked about it before, but what do we know about him? He was sadiq, righteous, and blameless in all the earth. Psalm 15 says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Someone who is righteous and blameless. And that's Noah. Okay? So, what is God doing with Noah? All right. Here is what I think is going on. I think God is saying to the earth, I am choosing the best you have and starting over. Okay? But God has very interesting, interesting intentions in doing that that are specifically part of Genesis 4 through 11. Okay? Which is what we'll get to. So he's going to establish his covenant. So there's no question. The line comes through Noah. My plan to redeem the world is going through you. We got birds according to their kinds, animals according to their kinds, creeping thing in the ground. So while the, while, the, while the world is going to go back into a watery mass, a new creation is happening with Noah. You see that? All of these things are creation language going through Noah. All right. So then we see Noah did this. He did all that commanded him. Seven pairs of clean animals, seven days, seven pairs of birds, waters increased, the ark. The ark seems to be an Egyptian loan word, which can mean chest or coffin. Coffin. So it's like Noah is being saved out of death, which the New Testament will equate with baptism. Everything on dry land in whose nostrils the breath of life died. Going back to Genesis. The waters prevailed, and now the world feels like it's back in Genesis 1-2, right? Decreation. 
but God remembered. This doesn't mean he was doing something, he's like, oh, I forgot. Remembered means called to mind. He called to mind. And God made a wind, ruach, which is just like in Genesis 1-2, the spirit hovering over the waters. He sends the ruach. 8-4, the day 7, remember? The number 7. In the 7th month, on the 17th day, the ark came to what? Rest. These are all rest numbers with the rest word. Okay? So rest is circulating. Nope. And then, and then he waited another seven days and sent forth a dove. What does a bird hovering over the waters remind you of? Spirit hovering over the waters in Genesis 2. So what's happening is God's saying, I'm making a new creation with your best man, world. All right, so here's what I want you to see. I want you to see the whole world in like cathedral seating, sitting over there. And God's saying to the world, hey, 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 hey. I am going to choose the best of the best that you have. He's righteous and blameless. And I'm going to start with a complete clean slate. When the flood happens, there's a word in there in the Hebrew that says, he wiped, he wiped the earth clean. He wiped it clean. Starting over, and I'm going to choose the best of the best that you've got. Okay? That's what he's doing. But he's got a very intentional purpose. Part also of the new creation that's going on here, the ark comes to a rest the first year, first month. What is, and the first day of the month, what's God saying? You might as well just, you know, look back at Genesis 1. I'm starting over. Brand new. Brand new starting. He'll say the same thing to Egypt when they're rescued through Passover. This shall be the first day of the month of the year for you. Very similar stuff. And that they may swarm the earth, be fruitful, multiply, all this recreation language. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal. This is the differentiation between clean and unclean that we'll see show up in the law. Shows up with Noah. And God blessed and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Then he gives capital punishment. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast, I will require it, and from man, whoever sheds, for God made man in his own image. Okay. You know what? I left out something. Oh, okay. At the end, he says, we already talked about this, he hangs his bow in the sky. Oh, okay, no, I didn't. Here we go. After, after Noah offers a sacrifice, the first thing he does is he... What? No, it's on the screen. All right. He plants, a, he plants a vineyard. What does that sound like? If, if this is new creation, it's a garden of sorts, right? And this is how narrative work. It never tells you the same thing. It just gives you a version of it that's very similar. It's kind of connected, but different. That's how it works, okay? So he plants a vineyard. We got a new creation. All the evils, they're buried under the sea. The world's been made new. He sent the Spirit. He made a new world. He's got your best, everybody watching? We got your best guy. He's right here. His name's Noah. He's blameless and righteous. He's planting a vineyard. It's a lot like Eden. Catch this. 
How did Adam and Eve, what was the, what was the means by which Adam and Eve fell? Fruit. What's the means by which Noah gets drunk? Fruit. His fruit, right? What, the fruit of the vineyard, uh, what do Adam and Eve first notice about themselves when they eat from the fruit? What's the first thing the text tells you about Noah after he drank from the fruit? Okay. What's God's message to the world? God's message to the world is, I could take your very absolute best specimen and put every condition as favorable as possible and you will end up in the Garden of Eden after the fall all over again because the problem can't be fixed by man. I got your best option right here. His name's Noah. Drinks from fruit, naked on the ground, just like Adam and Eve ate from fruit and noticed their nakedness. In other words, the hope isn't here, folks. The hope is not on earth. What you need is me. What you need is my provision. You do not need. You can't provide. Your righteousness are as filthy rags in my sight. You can't do it. You need a Messiah. You don't need good production. You don't need good humanity. You need Jesus. <clears throat> okay, this sets the groundwork for what's to come. The boy that, and, and you know, there's conjecture. Did, did Ham mistreat Noah in his drunkenness, like sexually? Um, or did he make fun of him or whatever? There's conjecture. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that Canaan is connected to Ham. And Ham is cursed. And this sets the groundwork for that Canaan is under a curse, which is the people that God's going to take over. And it all comes back to this with Ham. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Canaan shall be his servant. Japheth shall dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. This is ultimately coming through Shem. And then uh, do you see in the genealogy the order? The sons of Japheth. Can't miss this stuff. That's why you got to read the Bible like this sometimes instead of like this, even though you need to read it like that, like we did with the garden. You got to do that. But every once in a while, you need to pan back and say, What's going on? And Shem is the last one, which means the line is going through Shem. However, you notice something, oh, and, uh, and, and with Ham's genealogy, you notice some familiar names that are connected with Ham. Egypt, Canaan, um, Babel, Shinar, Assyria, Nineveh. These are names that you will find um, in Genesis 15 that these will be the nations that God's going to conquer and take over and annihilate. Um, so Ham is paving the way for the holy war to come. Okay? And, and, and it's just like, just like Cain's descendant was Lamech, Ham's descendant is like Ham. He's twisted. He's twisted. You know, Shem and Japheth back up with the, with the sheet to cover Noah's nakedness. Ham exploits it. So Canaan is a reflection of Ham. Now, what you see in Shem's descendants before Babel is they're moving to the east. 
And what do we know about East? It's bad. Okay. So they're in Babel. You got things. Whole earth? One language? Yeah, Faisal. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, there is arguments for local floods. I, I think the text completely leaves out that option, in my opinion. Oh, all over the place. Oh, yeah, good question. So, so yeah, the reason I think the text leaves out that option is because it essentially says, like, the highest mountain in the land was covered by blah, 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 blah. So, like, the text clearly gives the indication that it was a worldwide global flood, local flood. I, I just don't think the text supports as you read it. Um, as far as people being in all places, that really comes from what we're entering into right now. Babel is that explanation. It's the division of the languages that begins people separating into the globe. And this is intentional all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, which, which we'll get into here. Yeah, Brian. I have a question. Yeah. 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 Interesting. I will tell you this, that man, there are names in the Bible, like Nod being land of wandering, and then he builds it, um, and like Noah being connected with rest, and even Peter as a rock upon which I'll build this church, which is not Peter himself, it's the gospel. But there's a definite significance to names in the Bible that is just amazing, that I haven't looked, turned over every stone on those names. So stuff like that wouldn't surprise me. There are really in- interesting things. Um, but I haven't studied Methuselah personally. So, yeah. So the people migrated from the east, which means they are eastern living. They're eastern dwellers, which means where's their home? Here. Here. Amen. Come, let us make bricks, build ourselves a city, and make a Shem for ourselves. We don't want the image of God. We want, we want our name. Then they say, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What did God say to Adam to do? Fill the whole earth. Subdue it. All the way to the very ends. So they are doing the exact opposite. They want a name. They want an image for themselves. And they want them all gathered in one place. Exact opposite. And this is what's so funny. They'll say, we build a tower up to the heavens. And God says, let's go down and see what it looks like. (laughs) So these are what's called like anthropomorphisms where he takes on a role of a man in a sense, like a a words, description, attributes of a man even though he's not. Uh, It's called an anthropomorphism. God is spirit. But that's supposed to be laughable. How you responded is what you should have. And then he says something similar to Adam and Eve having access to the tree of life. Nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So this is very eerie that evil man is capable of awful things. I mean, guys, just consider the progression of militaristic weapons, right? I mean, you're talking like sticks and stones, right, to 
swords or arrows. And then it progresses to, when we get in Exodus, the chariot was like the, the jet of the day. And then we've got to our day where a push of a button could annihilate a nation. Like, I mean, it's just incredible, right? So when it says things like this, man is capable of unbelievable carnage. Like, serious carnage. And so he disperses them over the face of the earth, which is his intention anyway. Um, and then at the end of this, he says, yeah. Yeah, Perez, because there's a name that means separate. So I'm assuming, um, yeah. if this happened before he happened or after, because it would make sense if they gathered together, you know, maybe were yeah. buildings their own tower, and then God dispersed their land, and then their land went to their separate ways, and then the earth divided. But if it divided before, then how did people go to Inca and Maya? Okay, um, so here's, uh, here's the thing, um, and I, I haven't studied this a ton, but there, there has been talk of like land bridges and things of that nature. Um, you're just talking about how people get to different lands? Okay. The native people. Uh, there would not be a means for them to transport from, I don't know, from Boulder to, uh, then we discovered the world, the Americas and Australia. There would be no way to transport themselves until, you know, ships were invented and stuff. And they wouldn't be able to be, they wouldn't even be able to transport a population. Yeah. So, Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not well versed in that. I. I would. I would say, don't underestimate the capabilities of ancient people. As far as uh, shipcraft. Yeah, with their own language. That's that's the whole thing. So they have these populations in the most remote lands. Yeah. Oh, yes, 100%. I see what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. It, it gives the reason. It also gives the reason, you know, there's even stuff with, like, um, uh, I forget the uh, melatonin. I can't remember what it is. In the, in the skin. And eyes being different. What's that? Melanin. Yeah, that's what it is. The, the differences in how, in how um, people's shapes and bodies and skin tones and all these sorts of things can change gradually over time. And these people were very likely a very middle-of-the-road tone, skin tone. So it can go in either direction over, over significant periods of time. It's just incredible. You know, like when you're in another nation like me being here, 
and hearing people talk, it's just like baffling how someone else can understand that. It feels so foreign to me. Like on the plane, they'll, they'll speak in Ethiopian and then in English, and I'm like, man, that's hard to understand. Like, I can't even catch anything. And it's just fascinating. But this is, this is the explanation for these things. It's a very rational explanation. And, um, oh, and you know what, guys, did I? I'm going to be... Yeah, okay, let me see. Okay, I, I totally, I totally dropped chapter 10. This is the most important thing from chapter 10 that I want you to catch. As commentators count the nations in chapter, it's called the table of nations. As they count chapter 10, they come up with 70 nations. All right? This is hugely significant. Because when Jacob comes to Egypt with his family, how many people are coming? Seventy. The intention there, very likely, is God stating to the reader, the world has its 70 nations at this point. I've got a seed of 70 people that's going to grow into a nation that will bless the entirety of the world. They will grow into a tree that all of the birds of the earth, you know, in a sense, will come and rest in its shade. So these two concepts of 70, the 70 in the table of nations, and the 70 of Jacob's family coming to Egypt, are meant to be contrasted. That this is creation, but this is new creation. Okay? Alright, so in the midst of all this power of Babel, you get to know our lovely guy named Abram. Right? Wife's was Sari. Now Sari was barren. She had no child. So get, it, get, it, get expecting for God to do something absolutely incredible. I'm presenting to you something incredibly weak that will demonstrate my incredible strength. That's the concept that we should, that we should be preparing for. The first word that comes from God's mouth to Abraham is going back to Genesis Everyone's gathered together in one spot. What's God say to Abraham? First word. Go. In other words, we are going in a very different direction than gathering together. We're spreading out. We're spreading out. And it's going to start in Canaan. That's where the, the Holy of Holies will be. And out of that, the whole earth will be the outer court. That's what we're planning. So in Abram goes into Canaan, what does he start doing? First thing he does is he sets up a altar. That's, you know, like when people go to the moon and they put a flag in it, saying, hey, we're claiming this. That's essentially, Abram is beginning to claim Canaan in a spiritual way. He doesn't own anything until Sarah dies, which is a very fascinating text. The text in Genesis, you're like, why are they spending so much time talking about how Abraham purchased Sarah's tomb. Who cares? Right? It's enormous in the biblical narrative because it's the first portion of land that is claimed by Abraham. It's a very big deal. Because you kind of read the text and you're like, what's the big deal? It's just a cave. You know, Machpelah. Well, who cares? The, the author cares. This is God fulfilling his promise. 
All right. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now we've spent some time on, oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, very good, Epsiga. Yeah, it, it's been a while since I studied that particular portion. Um, I, I think that this is a precursor to Genesis 11. I agree that it's, it is a preface saying this is what's about to happen. This is how it happened. Yeah, very good, I'm, very good clarification. Because I think that's how the text presents it. Like, we're getting ready for... You know, you got all these nations. How do they come to be? Like we were talking about with Mikey. Here's, here's the explanation. Okay. Now, we've spent a lot of time um, on talking about blessing and where it goes, how it comes and where it goes yesterday. So I'm not going to belabor the point. Um, but here is the big deal. This is what I want you to see. What is in common with what God says to Abram that just happened at Babel? Which, by the way, Babel can mean confusion, right? Which is kind of funny because they all had one language. So it's, it's a play there. But what's, what's the big deal in, in, in what God says to Abram that flows very naturally out of Babel? Okay, that's, that's a good one. All the nations. Love it. I just spread them out. Now I'm going to reclaim them. Yeah? And I'll tell you, um, yes, Cor, a, a great New Testament parallel to that is at Pentecost, where all the people have divided languages, but yet they're all hearing the same. So that's like a reversal of Babel, okay? Blessing the nations, it doesn't have so much to do with Genesis 11. I will, yeah. Yes, Shem. Shem shows up. In Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Um, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will make your Shem great. So what he's saying from Babel is he's essentially saying, look, the world was all about ma making an, a name, which is totally connected to Genesis 1, 26 to 28, image. It's different, but it's the same. That's how narrative works. They're all concerned about making a name for yourself. Watch me make a name. Watch me do it. Can I have a try? I'll show you a name that will blow your mind way more than humanity can show you a name. So this is what God's up to. He's taking the scepter, so to speak. So this is, this is the stop. This is why we enter into a new part of Genesis. Because Genesis 4 to 11 was, okay, world, you have, your, you have your hand at it. And this is what it'll look like. And now I'm taking it, and I'm taking the ball and going. And it will blow your minds for those of you who have ears to hear and eyes to see. So, he's taking the name, and he's making a name for Abraham. So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him, Abraham was 75. And I, I wanted you to see that, to see when, how old he was later when they get Isaac. They came into the land of Canaan. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give you this land. Now this is significant because what you'll find as a pattern in Genesis is when his people obey him, 
He, you know, he just said, I'm going to do this amazing thing. And Abraham says, I'm all in. And he goes. And he takes Lot with him, the son of his dead brother. And he goes. And as soon as he gets there, God says, awesome stuff's going to happen. In other words, guys, when you obey God in something that might be nervous for you, there, there will oftentimes be a moment where God greatly encourages you in your spirit after you obey him in some risky venture. It's a pattern in Genesis. And, and I've seen it as a pattern in my life where I've been really tempted with something. And by God's grace, I remain faithful. And in that sense, there was like a, uh, a spiritual moment of like, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see the face of God. And I'm telling you guys, I've, I've experienced it in my own life. I'm not talking about I got wealthy. I'm talking about God gave me a moment of just glorious wonder in, in just walking in obedience with him. And that's a pattern in Genesis that I want you as followers of God, walkers with God, to get addicted to because it happens. There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Who's that remind you of? Who, in whose day did they begin calling on the name of the Lord? Seth. Remember? Seth pitched his tent outside Eden. This is Abram. Abram's not a man of the earth. He's not a Cain. He's not a Lamech. Or Cain's Lamech. Okay. Um, all right. So that gets us through 12. Let's look at your text now, if you haven't already. This is where the screen's done. Let's just start walking through the text, okay? All right. So, we get to chapter 13. Chapter 13. All right. Now, Abram's in the land, and just like Adam... First thing, Adam gets given some direction. The first thing God does is say, it's not good that man should be alone. And he puts him in a crisis. Right? What was the crisis? Of all the animals, no helper for Adam was found. No fitting helper was found. So it's a place where he needs to trust God. Adam does, and it's, 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 it's illustrated by his sleep, right? He rests in God in that moment. Psalm 4, I'll rest. You're my protector. Abram is in the land now, and the first thing he encounters in the land is a moment to trust God, okay? There is a famine in the land. Can you imagine the talk between Abraham and Sarah as she followed him obediently into this land? And the first thing they encounter is a famine. She's like... Yeah, this God that we're following is a great idea. We don't know what it looked like. All right. But famine comes. This is the text being significant. Look at uh, uh, 12. This is not chapter 13. It's 12.10. Excuse me. 12.10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abraham went what? Down. Down. That's important. Do you know that every time they're talking about going to Jerusalem, they say they went up to Jerusalem? We're going to talk about mountains and God, 
All right, we'll get to that in Exodus, but not now. But going down to Egypt is always significant because Egypt is pictured as a place of death. Okay, you got to get that. It's prepping you for Exodus. Egypt as a place of death, okay? So he goes down to Egypt. Is that Abraham living in day seven or is that Abraham figuring out life for himself? All right. And we kind of have a clue to this because a famine comes in Isaac's day too and God says to him, don't go to Egypt. Okay? So, Abraham, now again, I'm calling narrative cues. I could be wrong, I could be right. I don't think he was meant to go to Egypt. He goes to Egypt. You know the story. We're going to move as fast as we can. She's taken into Pharaoh's house. God afflicts Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. Does that sound familiar? Where do we know where do we see that happen in the future? Okay. This is introducing to you the theme of mediator. Okay? When God makes someone a mediator, he has them experience life as they lived it. Soak that in for a sec. When God has someone be a mediator, he also has them be a forerunner. They will experience life. They will experience problems. They will experience the fears before the people they're rescuing do. Huge theme in the Pentateuch, and it works out into the New Testament. Jesus took on what? Flesh. Suffered in every way like us so that he could be an effective high priest. Okay, a good boss never has his workers do something that he wouldn't do, right? It's a beautiful thing about a good boss, that he's done all the, he's cleaned the toilets, right? Before he asked somebody to clean the toilets. Jesus, and you see this in Abram. Abram, even though it's his sin that got him there, in my opinion, he's experiencing an exodus before Israel does. That's what the narrator, I believe, is, is pushing here, Okay? So, Pharaoh is dealt with great plagues. Pharaoh called to Abram, what is this you have done? The reason I think Abram's sinning here is because who have we heard say that before? What have you done? God. God said it to, to Cain and Adam and Eve. So when Pharaoh's saying this to, uh, to Abraham, I think it's a hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Abram should not have done what he did. He shouldn't have lied about Sarah. He shouldn't have done that stuff. He should have trusted God. Okay. Then Pharaoh says, take her and go. We hear another Pharaoh say something very similar. Go. Take. Go. Get out of here. That's what Pharaoh says in Egypt. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. After leaving Pharaoh's house, Abram's rich in all these things. Who's that sound like? The way Israel left Egypt and plundered them, right? So it's just incredible. Now, this is very intentional in verse uh, chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. So Abram journeyed to where his tent had been in the beginning. Yeah, in the beginning is where it gets to. So... Does it say beginning or just the negative? But it is the same. It says beginning good. Okay. 
So essentially, this is a moment, in my estimation, can you guys, can you just imagine, like, what a, what a punk Abram is and what he did with Sarah? I mean, man, I wouldn't want to look at Becky after that experience. Like, she could have been completely mistreated. Some commentators believe she was. I don't believe she was. But that's pretty awful. And what's really tragic is he does it again. Okay? But our hope doesn't ride on Abram. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> Just like it didn't ride on Noah, right? And that was the point. So he gets, he, gets to the, he gets to the place where he was at the beginning. And I think that that is intentional in the text. Because I think God's saying, hey, hey Abram, I want you to live here like you came here. You came trusting me, and you got here, and you started resorting to your own schemes. And I want you to stay trusting me. Don't do anything different. It'll go just fine. I'll take care of you. Isaac stays in the land when there's a famine, and guess what? God takes care of him. Abraham, at this point, seems to get it, and here's how I think he gets it. He says to Lot, they come back, they're just busting with herd. And, and, and folds, okay? And this is what Abram says. Uh, chapter 13, verse 9. He says, look, you know, our guys are starting to fight. We can't do this anymore. Lot, you pick wherever you want to go. I don't care. Now, you got to think. God's giving Abram this land, all right? You know, if, 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 if we gave you this building and said, okay, one of your rooms is going to be wherever you want it to be or whatever, it's like, Abram is the greater, Lot is his younger nephew. So Abram, in all likelihood, should get first pick, right? But Abram doesn't care. And he gives the offer to Lot, and here's where we go back to the fall, because what Lot does is it says he lifted up his eyes. Who's the last person we saw look with their eyes? Eve. Lot lifts up his eyes, and he sees the Jordan Valley. And what does it say about the Jordan Valley? It was like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. So what this is telling you is, is Lot is making a very living by sight instead of by faith decision. He's basically going back to Egypt, but not going back to actual Egypt. That's what, so Lot is repeating Abraham's mistake. Abraham's not repeating his mistake because he says, I don't care, you pick. In other words, I think Abraham's saying, I found a fountain that will follow me wherever I go. I don't need earthly resources. You choose where you want. Unfortunately, Lot is now aligning himself with Cain, right? He's choosing, he's choosing the land, and look at what the text tells you. 1311, what does it say? Where's east? It's further from the father's door. It's further from Eden. He's journeying east. Don't be happy with that. That's very bad. West is the holy of holies. Don't go there. Now look at verse 12. Settled among the cities and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, 
This is one place that the narrator gives you a cl- an actual statement of tr- like direct truth. He hardly ever does this. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Okay? So he's telling you, Lot's making a horrific decision. And here's what I want you, want you also to catch. The narrator is, is hinting and nudging that Lot is moving in degrees to Sodom. He moved as far as Sodom, and then he settled. Or he settled, and then he moved as far as. You'll find Lot is moving closer and closer to Sodom as the story develops, which is very interesting. All right. Now, Abraham gives Lot the choice. What do we find God do? God gives incredible blessing. He gives him further uh, explanation of the blessing that he's going to give him. And, and he articulates it further. So Abraham makes a decision of what I would call faith in giving Lot first choice. And God shows up and says, oh, Abraham, wait till you see. Look as far as you possibly can, and it's all yours. So it's like God loves to capitalize on faith um, in, in a wonderful way. Now, we know that Abraham never received the land in full. Because what Abraham was really after was not the land. Hebrews tells us that. He was offer, after a city whose architect and builder was God. Okay, so then we go, uh, we go on. We enter into chapter 14. Let's move, let's move fast. We don't need to spend a lot of time here. What the text tells you is that there were four kings that beat five kings. So what the text wants you to know is that those four kings were exceptionally mighty if they beat five kings, right? Now, one of the five kings that they beat was the king of Sodom, and he captured Lot. Now, this goes back to Genesis 12. God says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. You know what, that, you know what those awesome, like mighty four kings did wrong? They touched something that belonged to the blessing of God on Abram. All right? So... Abram goes, and just like it's telling you there's four kings, it also tells you the number of Abraham. Guess what the number of Abraham was? 318. It's, it's laughable. It's, it's the basic equivalent to Abraham and Sarah being barren. In other words, if these four kings could beat five kings, how is it humanly possible that 318 men could beat those four kings? It's a joke. But Abraham does it. Okay, so this is a fulfillment of Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This is those who curse you, those who come against you, I will curse. And, and he wins. So he walks in faith. He does this thing with the four kings. And on his way back, he's met by Melchizedek. Now, what Melchizedek is an interesting thing of is that, and the Hebrews makes a big deal about this. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, but here's what I want you to see in Melchizedek. Do you remember how the law separates the office of prophet, prophet, priest, and king? Do you remember how it wasn't separate in the person of Adam? All three were combined in him? This is after the fall. We find a gentleman who is a combination, even though sin's in the world, he's a combination of two, at least. He's a, he's a king and a priest. And so it's, it's a really cool indication. And, and what, the, what the text does is it, like, it doesn't give his genealogy. And this happens to be the way that Jesus can be priest as well because he's from the line of Melchizedek in a, in a unique way. Okay, Because Judah isn't the priestly line. It's the kingly line. 
But Jesus is able to, the author of Hebrews gets to, it's able to combine with a priest because he's from the line of Mel- Melchizedek in this sense. That's, what the, uh, that's how the author of Hebrews... But this is a regular person. Yeah, I don't... Some, some people see it... Do some people see it as pre-incarnate Christ? You do? No. Oh. Yeah. I don't, I don't think so either. Ooh. Yeah, beautiful, hey? Love it. Why aren't you here the whole time, Josh? All right, very good. Okay, so as he's with Melchizedek, the king of Sodom's with him. <laughs> this is hilarious, right? He just got rescued by 318 men, okay? It's comical. And so the king of Sodom's like, hey, listen, you know, you, know, you keep the plunder, you know, you, you do that. You won, I guess, you know, just we'll, we'll go. Abraham says, I don't want, I don't want a thread of your sandal. I don't want anything. I don't, anything that could say that man contributed to God's plan. So Abraham has these moments of like, this is awesome, devoted to, to God. It's, it's really exceptional, okay? He wants no connection with unrighteousness in this way, and it's, it's really awesome. Okay, so after he has this really high peak moment, what should we kind of expect to happen? What's been happening so far? That God comes and encourages him, right? And that's exactly what we see happen in Genesis 15. God comes and he says, your reward shall be very great. Because Abraham is just full bore leaning into God. And God's encouraging him in this. Um, And Abraham, in chapter 15, says, is, is getting fearful as well in the process. And he says, look, basically God at this point, I mean, you've told me I'm going to be a father of many nations. At this point, if I die, the only person that can inherit my estate, I think it's Eliezer. And he's like, I don't, I don't have a son. Um, and so God encourages him to come out to the sky in the night and look up to the stars and count the stars if he can. And it's this beautiful moment where Abraham looks up and he what? He believes. It's the moment we read this morning. He believes God. He believes God's provision. I would argue that that's how Adam interpreted naming Eve. He goes with God's provision of future life through Eve, and he capitalizes it and says, you, she should be called Eve because she's going to be the mother of all living. I, I, think, I think Abraham is looking at this, and he's believing God's provisionary promise and God says yes that's that is it and this is the beauty of Christ that Christ was the one that will bring all of those stars into fruition you know one of my favorite my favorite musician Rich Mullins says one of those stars was lit for me that Abraham counted, and one of those stars was lit for you. It's this beautiful promise, and he believed, and it was credited to him him as righteousness. A very significant moment. This is before circumcision is present. 
Um, and let's see, 15. Um, okay, let me go on here. Okay, 15. So, oh, guys, 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 guys. Yeah, did we do that right? Hold on. Let me see here. Yeah, okay. Okay, so then what God does is he offers, he, he condescends to offer a human arrangement with Abraham in Genesis 15. And the concept of Genesis 15 is kind of like, you know, God gives us a promise it's, it's almost like Gideon's fleece in a way where he keeps wanting a little, a little bit more security in that promise. Like, I want to know for sure. So God condescends to do this covenant with Abram. And what that covenant looks like is severing beasts in half and, and, and separating them, which creates what in the middle? Huh? A bloody path. A bloody path. Okay. And... What this arrangement was set up to do is to essentially say, if this, if this rug up here is the bloody path, the two people agreeing would walk through the severed beasts together. And what they were essentially saying to each other is, if I let down my end of the agreement, I will become like one of these blood, may I become like one of these bloody dead animals. And if you don't keep up your end, you'll become that. Now, as I studied this, the, like, if kings did this with somebody, they frequently wouldn't walk through because they wouldn't, like, submit. So it was just one person allegiancing to them. And they were like, no, I don't, I don't get that low. Okay? So Abraham does it. And this is where God does something incredible. And he casts a deep sleep on Abram. And... Then God, in the form of this fire pot, this smoking torch, okay? So just imagine, you've got fire and smoke. What does that remind you of? The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, okay? Is God's presence moving through, all right? This is setting you up for the exodus, and the Exodus is at play here because he tells him you'll be in bondage for 400 years. So he's laying the groundwork for Exodus. But what God does that's absolutely incredible is he puts Abram to sleep. So Abram is not walking through the covenant, which means that whose responsibility is it to fulfill covenant? God's. Whose responsibility... It is, is it then to die if Abraham f f drops his side? He accepts responsibility to fulfill and to receive punishment if Abraham fails, is the, is the concept at play. Which is what you have perfectly fulfilled in Christ. So God accepts, yes, Brian. What was Abram's part in this covenant? Okay, now we're getting to tough questions. Tough questions. So this is where you get into 
the ten words and Exodus 19, 4 to 6. Okay? So, God is, it has called Israel out. He's, he's saying to them, I am the God who rescued you from Egypt. Um, you are, and, 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 and out of captivity. Activity. Therefore, obey what I'm giving you, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, and, and, and this sort of thing. And then what you have is Israel, who while God is giving them covenant, is what Michael Morales says, is basically akin with the golden calf, to a woman committing adultery on her wedding night. Like, that's as bad as you can think, right? He's just forming covenant with them, and as he's writing up the document, in a sense, like uh, this relationship, they are going after other gods already, all right? So, you get into this thing where Moses comes to God Because God says, give me a second, I'm going to go obliterate them. And I'll make a kingdom, I'll make a nation out of you. We're getting way ahead of the game here. But, Moses starts pleading with God as a good intermediary to not annihilate them. And there is two arguments that don't work, and there's one argument that does. And what is the argument that does work? With God. That's part of it, but there's a reason for it. Who just said you didn't name them? Right? Like if you destroy them, people will say you weren't able to take them. That's exactly right. Okay? You've made a covenant. If you if you don't redeem them, the nations will think you failed. God says, okay, I won't. And I, and, I, and I equate God having this back and forth with Moses as very anthropomorphic. Why does he say to Adam, where are you? He knows where Adam is. He doesn't need that knowledge. Why does he say to Cain, what are you doing? He doesn't need that knowledge. Why does he have this back and forth with Moses? Because he wants Moses to have a heartbeat for his fame among the nations, like he has a heartbeat for his fame among the nations. And Moses arrives to it, and God says, okay, I won't. But God, that's, that's the thing. So, what is their part? Well, their part is to walk in faith, and in that, image forth his name in a very beneficial way. And this is why when Abram sins with Abimelech, who's coming up next, he's just sinned with Pharaoh, with Sarah, so a very similar thing will happen with Abimelech. But this time, uh, Abram is totally shamefaced in the text. He's humili- he sh- you, you walk away not wanting to be associated with Abram at all. You're like, man, once is bad enough. That was terrible. And it was, you profaned his name. It's really awful the way that you read it with Abimelech, okay? 
And here's what happened with Israel. Israel has, uh, God has covenanted with Israel what I would say a covenant that cannot be broken because he's promised. Okay, even though many times throughout the Pentateuch he flirts with it. He, he, he's almost going to do it. I mean, I, can't, I haven't counted, but there's several times where God's like, all right, let me add him. Let me add him. All right? And he doesn't do it. And the Messiah comes through them as he promised. Okay? But what Ezekiel, a huge theme in Ezekiel is you have, instead of spreading my name throughout the earth, he uses a different word. You have profaned my name in all the earth. You've made my breath stink among the nations. Therefore, therefore, as much as I was going to bless you, I was going to heap blessing on you, I'm going to heap disaster on you. Not to the point of annihilation, but to the point that you'll eat your own kids. So that you will never, you will fight over your infants to eat them. So that you will never forget the, the enormity of the travesty that you have committed in this world. I, I, I get, he says in Isaiah 5, he says, you're my vine, you're my vine. I pruned you, I tended to you. He gets to the point in Isaiah 5 where he says, you tell me what more I could have done. Is there something I didn't do? What else could I have done? I can't think of it, can you? And yet I got wild grapes. In Ezekiel 16, he says, when I found you, you were an infant wallowing in its own blood. Your cord wasn't cut. You weren't rubbed with salt. You weren't clothed. And he says, I picked you up. That's how I got you out of Egypt, out of Canaan. He says, you were like an infant just wallowing in its blood. Nobody claimed you. You're, you're, you're hopeless. You're destitute. I picked you up, and I nursed you. I formed you. I clothed you. And you grew up into this beautiful young woman. And you went to become a prostitute. You were my daughter. This is, this is this picture of just unbelievable grace that he keeps extending to them. But Israel keeps, you know, Amos, he says, I, I gave you cleanness of teeth, which is another word for hunger. Your teeth didn't get dirty with food. I sent pestilence in your land. It's the matter of e that I did to Egypt, which is what he promises in the law. He says, then I sent the sword to your land. And every time he does something new, he says, I, I sent prophets to your land. Every time he says, I did something new, he finishes the phrase with, yet you did not return to me. And so Israel's part in the land was to image forth the glory of God among the nations. The problem is, is that you, you can basically count on your hand the amount of times that happened. Once is in Egypt, and that was all the work of God, but it says that there was a mixed multitude that went up with them, right? That was likely some Egyptians that said, yeah, we'd rather be with them, okay? It's a beautiful thing. Then you see Jethro, uh, Moses' father-in-law, says, now I know that this is the true God. Jethro seems to come to faith, which is really exciting. Then you see Rahab in Jericho. 
she says, we've heard the stories. I, I, I want to be with your God. Um, so that's an exciting one. Um, you see Nineveh, they, they're pagan. They come and repent, even down to their animals. They put sackcloth and ashes on them. Uh, and Ruth is one. The Queen of Sheba is an interesting one. Um, but there are not many people who Israel leads to the faith. And so they, they profane their name among the nations. I don't, I don't think God would ever do what he threatened to do personally. However, he is God, right? And Jesus, when, when, the, when the Israelites are claiming that we're the sons of Abraham, and we're the sons of Abraham, we're the sons of Abraham, what does Jesus say? So you're like, could God have gone through Moses? Well, Moses argues with him, not according to your word. You know, you promised. And he's not from Judah in that sense. And so you, you get run into some things. But at the same time, God, if God says, I can raise up sons of Abraham out of these stones, who's going to argue with him? You'd be a fool to, right? So I, God keeps his word. He keeps his covenant. But I think he also wants you to know that I am who I am. Which means that, you know, the, the, an interesting thing with Moses in Exodus when he sees the fire, the burning bush, what did he notice in peculiar, peculiarity about the burning bush? Okay, which means that it was not using the bush as fuel. In other words, God is completely and utterly self-sufficient. He does not need a single thing. And as a result of that, he can do whatever in the world he wants. Our Lord is in the heavens, Psalm says. He does as he pleases. And who can return and answer to the Lord? Paul says, who can, who can respond? Who does he go to for counseling? Who can give a gift to him? How can he, he, he can only be, Repaid. I, he gives everything. Uh, Faisal. Is what? Oh, unilateral? Like all on God? Yeah. So, okay, you got the Mosaic Covenant, and I'm not going to feel so bad when I'm on the plane and we're not out of Genesis, because we are getting into a lot of the other law, which is good. And Genesis paves the way for that, so that's important. Okay, so in the Mosaic Covenant, what do you have 
along with the blessings. It follows, it's in Numbers 26, or uh, Leviticus 26 and number, in Deuteronomy 28. They, they basically have a restatement of the same blessing and curses, um, but they do it in a very similar way, okay? So along with every blessing, you also have a, a curse, okay? Which means that in some way, in some fashion, they are still his people no matter what. So now this is getting into way further eschatological things. But I believe personally that in Romans 9 through 11, God is not finished with Israel. That there is still a plan for national Israel, is my personal view. Some people would, would say that the church has completely replaced Israel, I think. But so, in a sense, God, in my opinion, is not going to ever stop this covenant that's being formed right now no matter how Israel jacks it up, which it's really hard to imagine how they could have jacked it up worse. Any additional thoughts on that? Uh, uh, Oliver. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm like, you know, here, here's, here's a question, and maybe I'm digging a deeper hole here, um, but is all Israel saved in the wilderness wanderings? Saved before God. It's eternally saved. Right. Yeah. I think I think the old generation could have been saved and one of the very interesting characters in uh, the Torah is, the, is this guy named Zelophehad. And that ring, ain't name ring a bell to any of you? Five daughters, okay? And, and here's what the daughters say when they come to Moses. They say, okay, hey, we're about to go in the land, and our fathers died, he had no sons, which means that his name's gone. And yet, we're going in the land to get an inheritance. And here's what, you, here's what we want you to know about our dad, Zelophehad. He sinned, he died for his own sin, which means he died with the old people, right? So in other words, when Joshua and Caleb did what, did what they did, who was he siding with? The ten spies or with Joshua and Caleb? The ten spies. He died in the wilderness. But then they go on to say, he didn't stand in the rebellion with Korah. Okay? Which tells you that Zelophehad very possibly had a repentant moment 
in the wilderness where he said, I've screwed up and I will die for my own sin, but I'm not standing with Korah's rebellion anymore, right? So you get a really beautiful picture of that there were folks that were, that were redeemed that died in the wilderness in, in a wonderful way. But all of these things had to be united with faith. All of these things had to be united with faith. Um, and that's, that's, the, that's, I guess, what I would call the most important question. That as far as God's covenant goes, the big question to ask is, is it united with faith? Because when Hebrews looks at it, he says, for most of Israel, it was not united with faith. It was received with unbelief. Um, and so I think the question is of faith versus faith in the covenant as far as being a participant in the covenant. If that, does that help? Are you just being, are you just being kind? Brian? Remember their part. Well, so he tells him to go. Now, his promise, his, his promise, Abraham believes in his promise. He believes in his promise. He's united with his promise in faith. Um, and I guess with the, with the Israeli Mosaic Covenant, the part that I have trouble getting around is that if they do what's right or if they do what's wrong, they're still, they're still in God's care in the sense that he's going to discipline them. That's the part that's hard for me. They're never outside of his realm. What do you add to that, Josh? And after Hagar, he does something interesting, right? After Hagar, which is, and I'm not trying to be crass here, but is a woman he slept with that he shouldn't have slept with, right? And I believe it's after Hagar that he says, it's time to get circumcised, which is the instrument of sin that he used, obviously, right? And I think what God is getting at is very much like after he sinned with Pharaoh and God leads him back to the same place, that's a redemptive moment where he's saying, Abram, don't do that again. And then with Abimelech, it gets worse in him doing that. That's definitely responsibility. Then with Hagar and circumcision, 
I think God is saying to Abram, I want the, your very inner core, which your, mascu- your masculinity is your most intimate part. And he's saying, I want your most intimate part to have that old stuff cut off, that flesh cut off. And I want you to be uniquely mine in, in your heart. So again, circumcision is just a tool to demonstrate the heart. So there is definite requirements uh, on him, and yet God is going to, to bring it about. I mean, when you look in the New Testament age, um, can we lose our salvation? No. No one can pluck us out of the Father's hand. Can we get struck down dead by God as believers for sinning? 1 Corinthians 11, for this reason many of you have fallen asleep, right? Because they've taken the Lord's Supper improperly. So, you know, if you're, the big question is, is was Israel united in faith to God? That is the big question um, that, that we'll grapple with when we get to Passover. Josh. Yes. I will promulgate my name. I will spread it because I see image in you. Is, is this thing. And an image only happens through faith. Because as you behold God, you become God in that sense. You look like God. And so faith unites us to God in a way that God says, I'm going to expand you far and wide. But when Israel doesn't behold God, they start looking like themselves which is not caring for the poor, not doing righteousness in the land, God says, okay, I'm going to make you like refuse because that's what your behavior is like before me. You are a a stench to me, so I'll make you a stench to all the people. So, uh, yeah, but God, God will not stop in fulfilling his mission uh, through, through his line. And, um, and so you run into interesting things where with Judah, who is going to be the one through whom the promise goes, God will get away from Joseph. Because, man, of all people, you think it'd be Joseph that the promise comes through, right? I mean, he's pretty immaculate in the text. But it's through Judah. And Judah is a dirtbag, okay? But in Genesis 38, one of the reasons I love it so much and named one of our boys Judah is because God strips Judah down to total nakedness before him. And he does it in front of the entire town. And Judah, and it's the town he was avoiding, he sent the goat to repay the prostitute, which was Tamar, by a friend to get his, basically, his wallet back. That's what the signet cord and all that stuff was. It was basically your ID, 
okay? So he sends it by a friend to get it all back so it could be done pretty quietly, right? Because Judah doesn't want everybody to know he's sleeping with prostitutes. And his friend comes back and he says, I, I couldn't find her. So Judah's now there. He's in the town. He gets word, hey, your daughter-in-law, she's pregnant, out of wedlock, you know, not by your future descendant. He says, burn her alive, essentially, which was, she should have been stoned to death, is the, is the concept. That's what the law will say. He goes even above and beyond. And she says, look, the, the, the city's gathered, probably. You know, ex- executions were probably a town event, all right? So people are gathered to watch this. And she says, hey, just give these to Judah and say, the man who got me pregnant, these are his. And Judah receives them in front of the whole town. I mean, you just, you can't make this stuff up. And he says, she's more righteous than I. And that is the guy through whom God goes. Did God go through Judah because he was righteous? No. I think God was going through Judah, Judah, and as a result of him going through Judah, said, hey, everybody, I want you to see this. I make my kids righteous. In practice, after I call them. (laughs) That's the idea. I think he calls. He sovereignly calls. He makes us his own. And then we follow suit in in the way that it happens. But what is our part? Our part, if you can call it that, is nothing. It's belief. It's belief. It's numbers with the fiery serpent and it, it bites It bites all of them. They're dying by this fiery serpent. And what's God's provision in that text? Which is an image, Christ will say, of himself. What does he do? Take the snake, put it on the staff, and hold it up. And whoever looks at it, and guys, I don't know about you, but if you really think about the text, if you're bit by that, snur- that serpent, I might be thinking of something like a tourniquet before I would look at a staff. Or water, Maybe. Flush it out. Ask my buddy to suck it out. Right? (laughs) To look at the staff. To do absolutely nothing but behold. And that is your salvation. And that that is the picture of Christ. So our contribution is nothing but faith. It's day seven. It's day seven. All right, guys. Let's call it quits. Thank you. Good discussion. Sorry I can't give awesome answers. It's hard. It's tough to get into these things, but we'll work through it.